Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Campbell, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode with Dr. Raquel Pacheco. I was so, 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 so happy to get her on the podcast. She's fantastic and a newer addition to the UCSB Anthropology Department. She's a professor, uh, an assistant professor here. And so it was really exciting to get to chat with her. I haven't had had the chance to take a class with her yet. So I really felt like um, I got to kind of ask the questions that, you know, I would have probably asked her in class anyway. So, you know, get to know her with me. We talk a lot about um, race, racism, gender, and women's roles in Mexico, because that's where she does a lot of her work is in Mexico. And I think that that kind of is a perfect transition for the book that I'm recommending for you guys this week, which is called Women's Place in Andes. And it's by Florence Babb. So I went to one of my local Santa Barbara used bookstores because um, I really like to try and buy my books from places like that rather than say for example like Amazon just so that we can continue to support small businesses and make sure that they can stick around for a very long time. So um so it's called A Woman's Place in the Andes Engaging Decolonial Feminist Anthropology. So we talk a lot about feminist anthropology in this book specifically um black black feminist anthropology but obviously this is more southern american focused but I still think that definitely a really good complimentary read if you're looking for something. It's not very long. Um, Oh, wait. Oh, I just flipped it over. Oh, that's cool. It's published by the University of California Press, UC system. We love that. Okay, so anyway, um, here's a little update on me. Um, Gosh, school is, you know, just ever so slowly taking away my motivation. Um, I'm ready for vacation, as I'm sure most of us are. I think the election kind of took a really big toll on all of our sanity. I'm going to be honest, sanity. Um, I've been really trying to engage more on the social media, and I feel like it's been falling flat a little bit. So that's that's what's been going on with me. Um, Miss Daisy is doing wonderful. She has started... Bar- like um 
trying to dig into the couch when she like curls up to take a nap. It's it's pretty adorable. I've had her for five months now. Oh yeah, sorry. If you guys don't know, um, Daisy is my six-year-old American Eskimo dog that I rescued about five months ago now. So she's she's my buddy. She's my roommate. Love love her to death. Oh, the other exciting announcement is that uh, working on the intro music. Been kind of, you know, it's it's been a busy quarter, but I have a listener who has been so, so thankful. If he's listening, thank you so much. We've been collaborating to create um, some intro music for the podcast. So that's coming your way. And the last announcement I have to make before we hop into the episode is a very exciting one. It's kind of one of those things that I never expected and I'm freaking thrilled about. So, all right, everybody. That Anthropodcast is officially being produced in collaboration with the American Association of Anthropologists. Isn't that exciting? They um, they were so kind enough to reach out to me and um, offer me a student membership and to collaborate with them and, you know, help support them. They help support me. So why, I'm going to have their website in the, the episode notes below. You guys can go check it out. You can see where my podcast is. They have a whole podcast library. That's the other thing is that I am, it's not, it's not just my podcast. They have maybe... 10 or so other members podcasts listed up there that are all anthropology centered so if you're looking for more anthro um podcasts they have some great ones there like uh this anthro life uh the dirt podcast etc those are just the two i can remember off the top of my head but amazing super exciting to be able to now you know collaborate with them i'm really really thankful so without further ado let's get into this week's episode with dr raquel pacheco hello welcome to the podcast thank you so much for taking the time to record with me today hi gabby it's a pleasure to be on the podcast So I always like to begin um, the episodes by having the guests kind of give our listeners a little background on themselves. So if you could just introduce yourself, kind of where you've done your education, and then briefly explain your current research interest and area of study. Yeah, so I was born in Mexico City and moved um, when I was seven. My parents moved to the U.S., uh, to Texas on the border. Um, with um, the state of Tamaulipas. And so I grew up on the border. Uh, My dad was a pastor on the Mexican side of the border. So we grew up, um, eventually, once we uh, became legalized, um, documented, we we started to cross with my father to his church and um, grew up kind of thinking about the border and that kind of difference, right? And eventually I went on to um, Dartmouth College as an undergrad, and that was shocking in and of itself. Um, There was a good group, a sizable group of Latinos, uh, Latin X, but it was a tough place, I guess, to find your way um, because there was such a, like a, like an elitism, right, that you that you become so aware of. But I guess it was a really uh, influential um, space for me, right? A lot of 
my commitments to social justice came from uh, being in, in, in at Dartmouth. And then um, at Dartmouth, I was able to secure some funding to go and, um, and, and simply be in Mexico. I got this fellowship that allowed me to, to volunteer for a women's organization, a women's uh, NGO. Um, in Chiapas, Mexico, and and that was amazing. I mean, I was uh, hopping on trucks, uh, pickup trucks, to go to the v these very small communities that were protesting all kinds of things. Like they were protesting the the um, switch to daylight savings times because they thought it was an imposition, and it was um, yeah, it was. Uh, eroding their sovereignty as community, indigenous communities. So anyway, it was a real eye-opening eye experience. And from there, I also had the chance of um, uh, interning with another NGO in, in Oaxaca, Mexico, in the middle of an uprising um, in 2005. And that was also super, super um, eye-opening for me. Um, and I got to participate with the NGO um, doing some hands-on solidarity work for um, um, this group of, of journalists that were kind of imprisoned in their own house um, because of the uprising, because of their stance against the governor at the time. So it was it was beautiful and um, I, I really liked my time in, in Mexico and then um, that really positioned me to want to study anthropology, but um, it wasn't exactly, I wasn't exactly sure that I wanted to get into anthropology. Um, and so I went into a Latin American studies program at UT, uh, U University of Texas at Austin. And, um, and then I found myself taking all the anthropology classes there. And so I eventually um, uh, pitched, my application to UCSD and it was successful and I, I was able to get a, a doctorate in, um, in anthropology and um, to study some of the very, sim very same issues that I had been kind of tracing through my volunteerism. Um, so I, I ended up uh, doing my PhD on a group of socialist peasants in Mexico who, um, who, who at the time um, were asking me to study land privatization programs. And eventually I had to switch over to a different question because that ended up being very, um, very prickly for like a novice anthropologist uh, and a female anthropologist. So I ended up um, uh, studying youth migrants of the same organization who I thought were interestingly positioned because they weren't exactly socialists and they very much resented socialism. And so um, they saw migrating as a way of actually attaining a better future for themselves. Um, and so I, I studied that. Eventually I brought in my project to include non-socialist youth, um, but still all of them were indigenous Nahua and Tenec youth from the Huasteca region of Hidalgo. And so that's how um, I got into that project. It was first based on a, a socialist peasant organization and then kind of branched out into 
just the region as a whole and its migration to um, internal migration to the city of Monterrey and other big cities in, in Mexico. So you mentioned how uh, you kind of followed the, down the path to become an anthropology major or, you know, to have that be your map to your graduate program. But what initially inspired you to first, you know, focus your area of study on Latin American studies at, um, did, what was your major at Dartmouth? Was it Latin American studies? My major at Dartmouth was political science. And um, so what inspired me to do the switch from poli side to anthropology? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, I mean, Latin American studies was um, a hodgepodge. So I took classes in different areas. I think it was mostly anthropology. And I think it was honestly the anthropology school at UT, which was um, led by Charles Hale, who is now Dean of our um, social science, uh, social sciences at UCSB. Um, But he was looking at some of the same issues, asking the same questions that I was asking myself in my uh, research site. At the time, um, these problems were about how how do we understand indigeneity and indigenous uh, social movements in the era of neoliberalism? And when when there was such a push to privatize land, um, that was um, very much undermining the foundations of of the indigenous social movements that we were that we we were all rooted as anthropologists and we had been following or supporting. Um, having some solidarity with these movements. And so Charlie Hale, Shannon Speed, they were all involved in these, in these types of questions of how, how privatization and market, market ideas are, were and are um, um, undermining indigenous, um, indigenous uh, economies um, and, and movements. Do you feel like, you know, being born and raised in Mexico, do you feel like uh, you've learned throughout your studies more about your own history and been able to have an even deeper appreciation of your own culture? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Although as a Chicana, I, it's very hard to feel like you are Mexican um, or American. And that's kind of the, the whole idea uh, behind claiming the Chicana identity. My, my identity, my sense of culture is, isn't tied to kind of a cohesive group of people. It's more about, um, I think, based on um, forming or forging solidarity ties with different people. And I, that's where I get my, my sense of, of identity and um, purpose. Because I think identity is about having purpose, having community. And I think I've always found that in communities of struggle rather than like identity communities. And I think that's a really important point point to bring up. You know, I love, I think I've been really like trying to have people of more diverse backgrounds on the podcast because it, it affects our research and it affects the way we present ourselves. And it's very important to, you know, acknowledge that and then hear other people's perspectives um you know 
and I, you know, I really appreciate you, ex you know, explaining to me how, how you identify because, you know, I can assume, but it's great to have it be explained to me. So um, the next question that I have is, so you're now, um, do you classify yourself as a sociocultural anthropologist? Because that's what the UCSB department classified you as. No, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> so as you were finishing your graduate studies, what inspired you to move towards being a professor at a research university rather than, you know, some other application of your skill that you had learned in grad school? Wow. Well, I think that I had amazing role models. So my mentor advisor was and continues to be a mentor to me is um, Nancy Postero. Um, and I, so I, I gravitated towards believing that I could be a good researcher. I, I, I thought that um, reading these ethnographies that were making such important contributions really um, encouraged me to think that I could contribute to these, to these um, understandings of, of social movements and, um, and different um, conjunctures of, of um, dynamics that I thought were important to speak about. Um, so yeah, I think it was just having these amazing role models um, that that made me believe that I could do it too. I mean, most of my ro role models were um, were white professors, but I think that they were very supportive of me all you know since grads since my masters, and I think that makes a huge difference when someone tells you you are starting to act like the part you might get the part and, and you, you know, you can join us. And so they always made that really, um, yeah, seem possible for me. And how cool is it that now you're in that same position? I'm sure you inspire your students to, you know, follow a similar path and that they can end up just like you. Um, which brings me into my next question. Um, so you teach um, Anth 125, the Anthropology of Gender course which I think is definitely a highly, everyone wants to take it, which I think is a great thing. But what are kind of like the big takeaways that you hope students take from that class? What are your main things that you're communicating in that class that you kind of hope students latch on to and then apply to their studies and also their lives, especially I can imagine like women that take the class probably have, you know, some big like takeaways and benefits that they, they get from that. So I've been uh, playing around with how to teach that course and that's because i'm so excited about it um and there's so much so many different ways of approaching anthropology of gender so my first time teaching it last spring i really focus on labor um and the intersections of labor gender and race um and so i had students uh, I, I really wanted them to understand how a labor is gendered raced and class but through their own experiences of labor. And so I had them keep a, a labor journal. And so they had four major entries where they, they reflected on their one form of work that they, that they do on a regular basis, and then reflected on that, 
um, in response to each of the readings that we did in class. And so my hope was that they would understand how the personal is political, how their own performance, their own um, options of what they do to, um, as far as labor, either paid or unpaid, how all of that was really tied to these greater questions of, of, um, of history and, um, and economy, right, political economy. And I think I, I was able to um, get them to see those, um, you know, to see that, how um, their personal labor is political. But um, based on one sole response that I got in the reviews that, that was um, sort of like a little critical of the approach, they um, thought that the class had been um, a little too feminist studies-ish. And, and that was because I, I, I assigned a lot of black feminist scholars. Um, and um, they, 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 the reviewer um, said that they would have hoped I would have assigned or tailored the class more around anthropology as a field. And I realized, okay, so I really should have assigned more black feminist anthropologists so that they would understand that this is, these are not outsiders um, and that they're, you know, black feminism is um, a, a central part of anthropology. So this year um, in the fall, I'm, I, I switched to a different approach in teaching the class. So I'm, I really want them to get a sense of the like historical turns um, in the approach to the study of, of gender within anthropology. And so they're taking a look at the evolutionary school, the materialist school. And so it's kind of more of a historical understanding of how, um, how anthropology has been addressing gender. And some of it is, is very, it's not what we would consider to be um, feminist, right? But that's important for them to understand that anthropology of gender wasn't to begin with feminist necessarily. And um, hopefully by the end of the class, we understand how we can carry out um, feminist anthropology. So their last project will be to come up with a research proposal because of exactly what you were getting at, Gabby, that we all need to see ourselves in these shoes. And so part of my, my intention is that they um, get their hands on developing a research proposal so that they can see themselves as possible researchers, possible research anthropologists. I think that's a great, a great uh, lens to take for the class, but I also really, I think you should bring back the labor journal because that sounds like it, anytime you're, you're, uh, you're forced to pause and self-reflect outside of class or in class and then share it with your peers or turn it into an essay, I think any form of self-reflection, especially for those who may be more privileged and or less privileged, seeing how those differences in, like you were saying, paid and unpaid labor, um, how, it, how it affects the overall themes. I think that that sounds very fascinating. Um, yeah, I think I will <laughs> sort of fuse the two yeah. approaches eventually. Thank yeah. you, Gabby. <laughs> yeah, so this is a bit of a lighter question. 
but what do you enjoy most about working and teaching at UCSB or Santa Barbara in general? Because we live in such a cool place and I feel like UCSB is such a diverse, like loving family-like community. So I just always like to hear, you know, how you feel about your role at UCSB. So I, I definitely like teaching at UCSB. I feel like there is a, a, a very tangible sense of community and I like how you do um, see um, faculty students um, on a daily basis, either on the bus when you're going to campus or in town or or in the school itself. And and I love that I came from UC San Diego, which is a much larger school, I think four times as large as UCSB. And, and you really can fall through the cracks and you really um, find a lot of students who, who are depressed, who have mental health issues. I don't know what the statistics are for UCSB, but my sense is that kind of, it, it is a happier place. It is a, a more like more jovial and more, there's more sense of, of community, which I like. And I, I especially consider it a bike utopia. And as a cyclist myself, I just, I love being able to, bike from Santa Barbara to campus and then be like joined by hordes of cyclists. I don't know. For some people, it's not their cup of tea, but I, I just think it's really well planned, a, a well-planned campus and kind of a model uh, campus for, I guess, environmental questions of transportation. Yeah, you know? definitely. I mean, the amount of bikes and the way our bike paths are is it's shocking to people that come from schools where it's not like that and our weather does like play into that but at the same time we are such an environmentally conscious school and it's just very interesting and also that's cool to hear that you're a cyclist my dad is a cyclist and he's gonna listen to this and be very happy <laughs> so let's kind of dive into your research and so your research includes indigenous studies gender and sexuality race and racism develop and migration a lot of which you examine in mexico could you tell our listeners a little bit more about some of your current projects? So my, my current project, and um, it is a writing project um, that um, I'm working on this quarter, is trying to um, use some Black feminism to understand um, this question of, of um, ra um, sexual violence. And I'm trying to use Hortense Spiller's work on the flesh to think through um, why indigenous women have been associated with unpaid reproductive labor and oftentimes are work as maids in Mexico and how that positions their body as more liable to being sexually violated and, and um, in the form of, of rape. And so my current project is writing about one rape survivor who um, I was able to witness it, interacting with a prosecutor who was trying to um, bring her case forward in Monterrey. Um, but uh, she was seen as either too passive, so passive that she didn't understand Spanish, or, or as criminal, because they also thought that she was making the whole thing up and was actually um, potentially trying to put her uncle in prison, which 
um, she claimed her uncle had had raped her. And so I'm, I'm trying to write about this case and trying to think through the link between uh, reproductive labor, indigeneity, and sexual violence in the history of Mexico. And um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm finding there's uh, quite a bit of, of good scholarship or useful scholarship, both in indigenous feminisms and black feminism. So that's my current project. That's great. It's so, it's, it's a heavy topic, but a very important one to be communicating to people that are outside of, uh, outside of that. Um, I also understand you're working on a book proposal. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, my, my book um, hopefully will be finished in about two years. I'm trying to, to get started on, on revising some of the chapters that I have already worked on. But largely, um, my book is about how um, this question of progress is being um, measured in terms of gender. And so I look at how um, the Mexican government has set up these local offices to help communities um, in rural areas, but um, I look at it in, in an indigenous area, to help these indigenous communities become more uh, harmonious in their family relationships, to be less physically violent, and um, to have women, indigenous women, go work in formal work rather than peasant work. And, um, and I see this as a way of disciplining indigenous um, communities. And um, I trace that through the workshops that these local level offices uh, give to these communities and um, how these uh, staff, which is mostly um, non-Indigenous, um, how they talk about Indigenous communities um, in terms of being excessively gender backwards. And so I, I conclude, or my argument is that um, the gender, um, that, the, that progress is gendered and, and it has, it is built on this notion that indigenous peoples are foundationally backwards in terms of gender and so it's it's it serves as a tool um to assimilate indigenous peoples but um it's it's done in a way as to also erode their sovereignty and their ability to to deal with their own problems without this Tutel, um, like tutelage relationship with the government, which you know has shown itself to be um, to be settler in so far as it's trying to erase its indigenous population or assimilate it. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I did a good job <laughs> in uh, representing my work, but I'm I'm trying to question this idea of of gender progress as uh, itself being um, a tool of racial oppression. I'll read it when it comes out in two years. 
two years. I'll tell people about it. That's why I always say it's, it's fun on the podcast that I think we kind of get to almost give like sneak previews to what's coming next for people. And I think that that's something that traditionally in academia, you, you don't get to do as much. I feel like it's, oh, what have you already done? Versus here, I get to kind of like ask what's in the future, what lies ahead. And I have several guests who I definitely will be tracking and then giving our listeners more information as it comes. That's great. Thank you, Gabby, for asking. With everything going on in our country right now, I think it would be really beneficial to take a moment and kind of explain your work and your thoughts on anti-racism and if you feel comfortable to touch on, you know, the large scale social movements that are going on in our country right now and kind of how you see them from an anthropological perspective and also I always think about you know how is this going to affect us going forward where do we go from here so I'd love to hear your thoughts yeah I think that that there's been a lot of um a lot of push from the youth um it's it's a the the Black Lives Matter movement has been led by young folks and um, and and it's 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 set a new precedent for what um, social movements look like in our country um, the The promise of this movement is vast I mean we're seeing changes at all levels right um, uh, levels of uh, electoral um, some electoral victories and 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 at the level of of it becoming kind of a consensus right in the in the nation that black lives matter at least among some cohorts of the of the american population and even beyond right so many other countries ended up um uh, staging protests in support of blm so that is very promising because we know that anti-blackness and white supremacy is not just an American pro problem, and it it touches on on um, you know it has global implications, and so that is that is great to see. Um, the 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 question though for me is um, how will we how will we deepen that kind of push that analysis that Black Lives Matter into other areas. Um, so I think in the in the summer there was this big push to see um, the um, trivial, trivialization of black lives within the police um, um, and city budgets, for example, right, were attacked as um, as carrying out this anti-black violence. But I think that the the disappointing truth um that came in in uh, on the 3rd of november was that um prop uh proposition 16 failed in california um and that was to bring back affirmative action in our state to make race and gender um uh categories through which uh, you could get admitted to in um in college and hired or um, selected uh, by government agencies, if if you're a business uh, business owner of color, right, or a, a, a female business owner, this was going to help um, really equalize the playing field. But 
you know, I wonder what happened, right, when we had such a, a vibrant BLM landscape in, in the summer and primarily led by youth, where, why did Prop 16 fail is my question. Um, and I don't know if it's because um, these analyses are, aren't being like, um, they aren't being extended to other areas of our society. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be um, really finding ways of, of um, understanding how um, lives, uh, black lives and people of color uh, are, um, are um, undermined and devalued um, in a, at a structural level, not just in these very um, specific points such as city budgets or the police, right? We need to see it um, in other areas, right? Such as our admission admissions process uh, as a University of California, for example. And our hiring process and making sure that we're um, hiring professors and faculty of, of diverse backgrounds. I think that's as equally important as well as um, this is something that Dr. Vanderwerker brought up when I chatted with her was um, giving opportunities even to high school or community college students of lower income people of color to have the opportunity to work in labs if they're interested in you know, a scientific or anthropological career and giving them those opportunities that they may not have uh, otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that we're discussing as a department, how, how can we diversify our pool of applicants mm -hmm. and admitted students? I'm glad to hear that that's happening on a departmental level. For my last question, we're gonna end on a fun, lighter, happy note. What or who inspires you? Well, Gabby, I'm really lucky because um, one of the people that inspires me the most is my my partner. Her name is Georgia Gomez, and um, we've been together for four years, and she just finished running for Congress um, this, this round of elections. And unfortunately, she lost. Um, she was one of these... Uh, uh, candidates that was endorsed by Bernie and AOC and Elizabeth Warren and I can't you, believe I didn't know this it broke my it broke our hearts on November 3rd that she lost and she lost to to uh, um, a woman uh, who comes from a very very wealthy family in San Diego um, they're the founders of Qualcomm which is a, a company that um has has developed software for cell phones and so their their wealth is vast and and um she was outspent you know by a large margin and it was uh it was so interesting to me that the day of you know she had a hard day but the next morning she was ready to go she's city council president of san diego and she was up and going the next day while i had trouble getting up, um, I, I had trouble facing the defeat and, and just, you know, finding motivation to, to go on. But, but she didn't. And, and uh, what she told me was that she's 
faced defeats and losses before when she fought for her uh, neighborhood Barrio Logan here in San Diego and and overnight all of her work that she had been doing over several years it, it got defeated based on um, a measure that was passed and so she said this this is um, not me and I am used to this and I know that I have to keep going and there's if we don't do the work, who, who, right? So I think I've, I've really learned so much from my partner and, and um, yeah, I think she right now is a person who most inspires me. <laughs> that That's amazing. And I will personally be asking you more about her so that I can next, uh, next term, if she runs again, um, you know, direct my vote where it matters and where it's, needed also um does that mean that you've met AOC <laughs> have you? no my partner has talked to her on the phone but iconic lady love her can't wait to see her run for president one of these days she will have my vote <laughs> in in a blink of an eye um and you know something exciting now that we're recording this episode is we do have a female person of color as our vice president so that's pretty exciting to be able to say that you that know, is really exciting. Last week, Ro Ronnie and I recorded on the Wednesday after election day, and wow. we got off the call, and we both were like, all right, check the polls, like, because we still didn't know, and, you know, it, it makes me happy. It makes yeah, me so happy, and um, I also look forward to the day where politics won't be determined by outspending, and it will be based on policy and visibility and all of that. Um, but that's great that she ran and I hope she runs again because she's right. It's not over. It's just the beginning. And I, and I'm sure, I'm sure she's quite young. <laughs> so I'm sure that there's quite a bit more that she has to give and to offer and to keep fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's all we can do is, is try and keep fighting. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. That was truly a wonderful conversation and I'm sure everyone listening is just going to love it as well. Um, I will have um, your info in the description so that people can check you out. Thank you, Gabby. It was lovely.